Christoph mentioned last week that this is actually the fourth time in 13 years in our church that we'll have elected elders. So for many of us here, this passage in Titus is more than familiar to us. But we know that God uses the same passages of scriptures at different times in our lives to speak to us in maybe very different ways. So I pray that he will speak to you afresh this morning as we read Titus 1 verses 1 to 9. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This is the word of God. Uh, thank you for, for that, Lisa. Um, folks, we're taking three weeks ourselves. It sounds like um, did I miss a good joke? Um, I'll persevere for a moment and if uh, it doesn't work uh, I'll <laughs> Wishful thinking Ronnie? Blown up at the start of the sermon would be better than blown up at the end, wouldn't it? Now that we're in a, a frivolous mood, I'm just reminded of... Um, we, had, we had to sign a, a document here recently, the elders. It's about how you use your church halls, sort of a formal legal kind of a licensing agreement. We had to approve it and we would issue it to anybody who's going to use our halls. So one of the conditions in the licensing agreement was that nobody coming into the church premises was allowed to use mind-altering substances. Um, I, I was a bit disappointed when, when I read that. I thought... You know, what's the point of preaching if, if, if the 
word and the gospel aren't mind-altering substances. Uh, what, what am I doing here? I, I, hope, I hope we believe God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ are just that. Mind, heart, life-altering uh, for all of us. Three mornings were taken to prepare ourselves for an election of elders. Um, last week we started. We started by thinking of the duties of an elder. This feels quite weird to me now to be stuck in one place like this. But oh, um, we looked at a, a passage in First Peter chapter five where we saw that an elder is to be a shepherd of God's people under their care. And we saw three contrasts that give uh, a little bit of substance to that. They're they're to to be shepherds, not because they must, but because they're willing. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to them, but being examples to the flock. This morning we're going to think about the qualifications for eldership. Uh, last week we did quite a bit of work from the code, the governing document of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. I wasn't sure how that would go down, but loads of people told me they loved it. So we're doing more from the code today. Um, there, there are more paragraphs coming. What does the code say about the qualifications for eldership in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland? Well, paragraph 31, uh, I showed it to you last week, just, just tantalized you and then put it away. Today we're going to get a good look at it. To be chosen for the office of the eldership in a congregation, a person must be a voting member of that congregation and a regular attendant in its ordinances. He should be circumspect and exemplary in his conduct, both in the church and in the world, of acknowledged piety, endeavouring to maintain the worship of God in his family and held in high esteem by the people. Women shall be eligible for election on the same conditions as men. So, that's the legal version, or the legal answer to this question, uh, what qualifies uh, a person to be an elder. We're going to look this morning, uh, as we did last week, we're going to take the, the legal position and look at it in the light of what Scripture teaches Um, So if you have open before you the passage we read a moment ago, Titus chapter 1, it's page 1198. Very, very quickly, Paul writes the letter. He's writing to Titus, um, a sort of... uh, ministry apprentice, I don't know, maybe, maybe like an assistant minister, someone who's worked alongside him. And he's giving him advice for how to establish a new church in Crete, on the island of Crete. And Paul begins his letter proper with the most important advice of all. As soon as he gets his introduction out of the road, he says, Titus, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus, there's nothing more important when you establish uh, these new communities of Jesus followers than to establish a godly leadership. And we said last week, leadership in the family of God has always been important. Old and New Testament show us that. And here, uh, Paul is affirming that. And this is why we're taking time to think before we charge into electing new elders here at Kirkpatrick. 
Verses 6 to 8, Titus tells us what kind of people these elders should be, and he gives a long list of criteria. There are about 15 there, depending on, on how you count them, and they fall very naturally into three groups. The first group focuses on the elder's life at home. The second group focusing on vices that the elder shouldn't uh, possess. And a third group focusing on virtues that an elder should possess. So, I'm just going to race through these today. Blameless, we're told. This first quality actually sums up the whole list. Paul basically says that an elder should be blameless, and then he goes on to uh, give 14 suggestions of what that might mean in practice. Uh, And he repeats the requirement in verse 7, just to reinforce its importance. He begins by focusing on the elder's home life. He says the elder should be the husband of but one wife. That is... Has he or she been faithful to his or her spouse? Does the person who we're thinking of appointing to leadership have a pure reputation in the area of sexuality and marriage? Is this a person that we can trust implicitly in this regard? I want to pause here for a couple of moments because on, on first reading, this passage seems to be at odds with what I've just showed you from the code in paragraph 31. We read there uh, the last phrase in that paragraph that women shall be eligible for election on the same conditions as men. So surely Paul's teaching here rules that out. Well, let's pause for a moment to think about that. Paul's writing into a very specific cultural context where it would have been unheard of for women to be in any form of leadership. So the vast majority of men would also have been married with children. So Paul, when he speaks here, is running with assumptions that might qualify, about who might qualify to lead in a church that we may not share. Just going to take a moment to feel the, the response that that's bringing as you listen. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that Paul's teaching here doesn't apply. My question is, how does it apply? Do the things that Paul assumes here become normative for us? Do they become commands? Well, let's test that and see what life would be like if they did. A single man couldn't be an elder. He's not the husband of one wife. A married man who has no kids, could he be an elder? Well, he doesn't have believing children. What about an elder who is married, who has kids, but the kids are still very young? How exactly has that person demonstrated that his children believe and that they're not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. How old would the kids have to be before we could put a good solid tick beside that criteria and know that the dad qualifies on those grounds? Do you see how difficult it is if we make Paul's assumptions about leadership normative? 
Unless we're willing to say that a person shouldn't be appointed an elder unless they're married and until every one of their kids are full grown with a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ and an unambiguous Christian witness, then we'd at least want to be careful of how we apply this text. What does Paul have in mind? Well, it seems to me that he's absolutely emphatic about the character of a person that we would appoint to leadership. Are they faithful in their marriage? If not, they can't be an elder. Are they influential in their home with their spouse and their children? Do they set an example that other people are likely to follow? I'm going to dwell with this uh, a moment today, uh, this question of women in leadership in churches, this complex question. And as I do so, and before I set off on the journey, I'm going to remind, well, I'm reminded of some advice that I heard uh, from my theology professor, Dr. Packer, for debates like this. He said, when godly and intelligent people disagree on an area of secondary importance, then be careful of creating controversy or conflict. Sounded like good advice to me then, and it still does now. Let's think about this for a second. It's an important area. It's not one of the fundamentals, though, of Christian faith. The Presbyterian Church in Ireland sets out only three fundamental doctrines. The doctrine of God, of man, and of the church. So long as we can agree on who God is, how he's graciously done all things that are needed to reconcile us to himself through Jesus Christ, and the church's role in inviting people to Jesus and discipling them in him, then we have liberty to disagree about many other things. PCI uses a good phrase. It urges wise liberty of interpretation on secondary issues. Wise liberty of interpretation. The role that women play in the leadership of a church is important, but it is finally a secondary issue by these definitions. There are other issues. Think of baptism for a moment. Just baptized a baby. A lot of churches, as you know, don't baptize babies. I think it would be uncharitable and unwise for either a church that practices only adult baptism or a church that practices the baptism of children to say that the other church is not a biblical church, is not an obedient church. Wise liberty of interpretation seems like a good and right posture to take. So if this is a secondary issue that wise and godly people... Are, sorry, can we recognize that there are wise and godly people on either side of the debate? Well, I believe that there are. Um, if you want to read up on it, uh, take the opportunity to do so. I've brought a couple of books along which I own that would illustrate this. Uh, 
1991, uh, John Piper and Wayne Grudem edited this collection, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, a Response to Biblical Feminism. And the contributors of this book, they, they write a, a lot about a lot of issues around the area of male and female in the church and then uh, leadership. The contributors to this book would contend that women should not be appointed elders. In 2005, Robert Pierce and Rebecca Merrill, along with Gordon Fee, my New Testament professor, edited this book, Discovering Biblical Equality, Complementarity Without Hierarchy. The contributors of this book would contend that the Bible's teaching doesn't preclude women from church leadership. I don't know all the contributors to these two volumes, but I do know contributors in both. And by my estimation, by Packer's criteria, they are godly and intelligent people. Perhaps I could share my own experience of women elders for one moment. I had never thought about this until preparing for this sermon. I grew up in a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching Presbyterian church that didn't back then and still doesn't appoint women elders. Then, as a nine-year-old boy, when I wasn't asking the question about women elders, I joined a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching Presbyterian church that did have women elders. Over the years, I've been much blessed by the ministry of women in that congregation, but in many other uh, forums since, and in their leading and in their teaching. And I'm grateful to God for it. I've nearly done talking about this for today, but let me put you in the picture and explain our current position Uh, just to bring a bit of clarity, knowing that there's an election coming. The Presbyterian Church in Ireland has permitted women to serve as elders since 1926. So there's some uh, period of of time since uh, that decision was entered into. The Kirk Session, so, so that's the denomination as a whole. This community at Kirkpatrick Memorial has permitted women to serve as elders for a number of decades Uh, That's something that's been going on here for... I I could probably have done a bit of research and tried to work out when the first woman elder was appointed, but it's it's certainly a number of decades. Um, And the the service of those women elders has been appreciated um, as a blessing. In this election, just to reiterate what the code says, any person, regardless of gender, may be nominated. If you were looking for definitive teaching on the question of women in the church, and particularly women elders, I'm sure I haven't satisfied you. I didn't try. If you're still exercising your mind on the question, do, do the work. Read, read the books. Read the books that affirm your intuitive and opening position, but also read the books that outline uh, a, a counter view. Try to get a handle on the good and the godly arguments on both sides of the bait, debate. One last comment. 
At our previous election of elders, uh, a number of members of the congregation uh, approached me and the Kirk Session to question our approach to this subject, this question. And it gave us all pause for thought. It gave us a season of of soul-searching, of questioning our position on this subject. After hearing the concerns that were raised and reflecting on them, we decided to continue our practice of appointing female elders where that was the express will of the congregation. And we communicated that to the brothers and sisters concerned. I don't doubt that this was difficult for them to hear and to accept. It made for a a difficult season in the, the life of the church family for those of us who were aware of it and were close to it. Now, three years later, I want to affirm the individuals concerned. I want to commend them for their passion for obedience and godliness to do the thing that God calls us to do. I want to affirm them for the way in which they accepted a decision that they don't necessarily agree with. But even more than that, I want to thank them for the huge contribution that they've made in the life of this congregation ever since that difficult time. You've given me an even bigger vision of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. You've shown me that when we can agree to work around secondary issues that we disagree on, then the one primary issue becomes all the more central and all the more clear to us. The one who is always primary, Jesus Christ himself. Enough about gender for today. Another qualification. A person whose children believe. Does this person's children believe? Well, there's a clear logic here. John Stott puts it like this. An elder can hardly be expected to win strangers to Christ who's failed to win those who are most exposed to their influence, their own children. Folks, I would urge a wee bit of care again here to make a rule of this. Think of Samuel. Samuel stands out as one of Israel's great leaders. I don't know if you know that Samuel's sons were a disaster. Samuel was never dismissed from leadership for this reason. So I think while Paul's drawing our attention here to the response that children make, the emphasis here, I think, is on the leadership given by the parents. Are they doing all they can do to see their children come to faith? Next qualification. Whose children are not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient. Does anybody want to be an elder in in the church? Like, anybody up for it? I just think this flows out of what we've been saying here. Careful of making laws of things that don't feel like they should be laws. Look at verse 7. 
since an overseer elder is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. Whenever Paul writes here about being entrusted with God's work, that's a a very specific word. He's talking about how the steward in a Greco-Roman household, the household steward would be entrusted by the master with with the day-to-day running of that church. It's an extremely responsible job. The elder, says Paul, is a steward in God's household. Jesus, who stands over the church, hands over the day-to-day running of his church to elders. Do you see now how the stuff that we've been reading in verse 6 leads very naturally to verse 7? If a person can't look after their own household, it seems strange to invite them to lead uh, beyond it. Let's pause for a second here because this is the second time we've come across this word blameless. We're not talking about perfection here because that would rule out every last person among us. The word doesn't mean perfect. What it means is without blame or unaccused and that's a slightly different thing I think. Maybe you've heard people talk about a person in a good Ulsterism. You couldn't say a bad word about him or about her doesn't mean they're perfect. It just means they're good guys. And there's no part of us that doesn't want to affirm them and give them the benefit of the doubt. Blameless. That's what Paul's talking about here. In uh, another parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3, he says, verse 2, that an elder should be above reproach. Verse 7, that he should have a good reputation with outsiders. Christian leaders are supposed to to have a good reputation in public. Uh, There's a phrase they used to use in football, I haven't heard it for a while, where a footballer could be charged for bringing the game into disrepute. We don't want to appoint elders who are likely to bring the the church of Jesus Christ, our Savior, into disrepute. So part two talks then about vices that an elder shouldn't possess. After dealing with the home life, it's, it's this list of characteristics that we want to avoid. They mustn't be overbearing or quick tempered. Are you thinking of nominating somebody who's bossy? Somebody who gets angry? when they don't get what they want. Don't. God's word says that an elder shouldn't be overbearing or quick-tempered. They mustn't be given to drunkenness or violence. Uh, Drunkenness, I think, was a real problem on the island of Crete, from what we can understand. Uh, It's a problem that is still rife in in our culture. I think uh, Belfast wouldn't be without its share of problems in this regard and and violence uh, often goes with it as you know we're not saying here by the way that uh, to be an elder a person must abstain from using alcohol they simply mustn't be drunken that is a, a view that's taken right through scripture They mustn't be pursuing dishonest gain. Would you be happy doing business with the person that you're thinking of nominating? I was trying to think, like, what's what's a good... Would would you buy a second-hand car off them? You know? If they told you it was all right, would you take their word for it? That's maybe not a bad 
barometer for do you trust this person? If you can't trust them with that kind of thing, then maybe you shouldn't trust them with leading in the church. Very quickly, part uh, the third part of uh, of Paul's list here: virtues that an elder ought to possess. An elder should be hospitable. Maybe that one surprises you. Paul says. Actually, this was an expectation that was on all Christians. In Romans 12, Paul urges all believers to practice hospitality. In his first letter to Peter, he says, Offer hospitality to one another. If a person has an open home, it seems to me that they have a, that's a good indicator that they have an open life. Maybe even a, an open heart. It's a quality that we really value here in Kirkpatrick Memorial. Uh, if you're part of our discipleship groups, you'll know that. Uh, you'll know that many people, not just the elders, but people beyond, um, open their homes and welcome each other. That's a great thing. An elder should be one who loves what is good. Uh, goodness is a big theme in this letter that Paul writes to Titus. The, The basic gist in Titus, Paul wants all Christian people to live good lives so that Jesus is attractive to a watching world. Well, we wouldn't say any less of our elders. They ought to be leading the way in this. Their lives ought to attract us and other people to God. One who's self-controlled. This phrase is used in, in pagan writing. As well, and it talks about the, the highest ideals of, of behavior. Well, Paul's making the point if, if the pagans are valuing self control, we, we want to hit that mark at least and outrun it. Upright and holy. Is there a difference between those two? Well, uprightness might be more to do with how we relate to people. And holiness, the way in which we set ourselves aside for God. And lastly, disciplined. This is a noun form of the same word that's used on the the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23. I was thinking about this um, in terms of our actual experience of, of leading Kirkpatrick these days. I'm going to say to you, don't nominate a person who's casual or unreliable. They simply won't be up to the work. They'll not be equipped for the demands and the responsibility of eldership. An elder must be disciplined. So Paul's given us a a long list of criteria to have our eye to. And then he says they must hold firmly to the trustworthy message that has been taught so that they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. To be an elder in the church, a a person needs to be a lover and an upholder of God's word. They need to know how to teach it to others. They need to know how to defend it against those who contradict it. So, Bear that in mind, a person who's committed to God's word. By the way, when we use Paul's list here, although it's helpful as a, a checklist, it's not, it's not um, exhaustive. 
How do we know that? Well, he publishes another list in another letter to one of his other understudies, Timothy, in chapter 3 of that first letter. He drops some of the criteria from the Titus list and adds a couple of others. I'll give you the couple of others. An elder shouldn't be a lover of money. If we're inviting people to make God their God, it's important that we don't worship other gods. An elder shouldn't be a recent convert. I think that makes sense too, doesn't it? We're looking for people who are mature in their faith. Sometimes a person might ask me, you know, uh, such and such a person, um, are they old enough to be an elder? To which I would say, well, it, it's not necessarily a person's physical age that, that we're wondering about. It's their, their maturity in the faith. Sometimes a, a younger person has outstanding uh, maturity in faith and can be called into leadership on those grounds. So more, more to do with spiritual maturity than the date on your birth certificate. I want to bring this to a close because that's a very unusual way for me to, to preach. Uh, I'm not really into long lists. Um, I, I like the mind more to focus than to be scattered over a long, long list. So what is the focus if we zoom out from the long list? Have a look, ha- have a look at that list, okay? It's a job that you've been asked to apply for. And these are the essential criteria. Do you know that stuff you get with a job? You get the job description and then you get the essential criteria. This is the kind of person you need to be to do this job. Paul's given us the essential criteria. You'll notice one remarkable thing. No mention of how many GCSEs a person should have. No mention of them being successful or wealthy. In fact, there's not a single item on this list, as far as I can see, that refers to abilities, raw abilities or skills. So when Paul tells Titus what sort of people to appoint to be elders, he isn't looking for people who can do something spectacular. He's looking for people who are something special. People of character rather than ability. Men and women who love God and who will uphold his reputation in the congregation and before a watching world. Folks, if you'll allow God's word today to be that mind-altering substance that we talked about at the outset, then maybe that's the main change that God's word invites us to consider. Godly character before anything else. Before we look at talents, we ask, are they trustworthy and faithful? When you're looking for elders, says God's word, forget about reputation, charisma, and ability. Go for character. Let us pray.
Father God, uh, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that it is so helpful in painting a picture for us of the kind of person whom we might invite to, to lead us in our election in a couple of weeks' time. Lord, we need to allow you to recalibrate our minds. When we think of the people who are impressive to us, the people we give our time and attention to, the celebrities and the stars, Lord, they don't stack up well, many of them, most of them, by the values of the kingdom. Lord, we pray in a general kind of a way that you would straighten out our thinking and that you would show us right before us who the real heroes are, those who are full of your spirit and walking in step with it. And Lord, specifically we pray that you'd help us by your Spirit, identify to us those in whom you're at work, those whom we could trust, and those whom we could follow as they lead. Lord, help us with that, we pray. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.